Galatians chapter 6, where we'll find the final passage in this tremendous letter. Galatians chapter 6, let's begin reading in verse 11. Galatians 6, 11. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Amen. Would you join me now in prayer? Heavenly Father, thank you for this tremendous book that warns us against the type of gospel that our hearts are so easily drawn toward, this gospel that says you've got to do it, you've got to achieve, you have to keep the law, you've got to keep the rules, you've got to get God's attention. Somehow we're drawn to that, Father, and, and yet, as we read here in the book of Galatians, that's not the nature of things at all uh, because of the work of your Son. And so we thank you, Father, that through the work of Christ, our work is completed. Through the death of Christ, our curse has been exhausted. And Lord, I pray that this morning you would show us, tell us how to make, how, how to tell the difference between that false and seductive gospel that leaves us shackled in our sin and the true good news that sets us free. Father, we pray all this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. It's often hardest to distinguish true from false when the stakes are at their highest. Have you found that to be true? Imagine, for example, that you're hiking alone, which, as I understand it, is not a good idea. But you're hiking alone, and you get lost, and you run out of food, and so you decide, uh, because you've watched a, a few episodes of these survival shows, you know that the first thing you need to do is build a shelter, and you are smart enough and you have the presence of mind to build that shelter near a fresh water source. And you finish that and you gather some firewood. But after a day, two days, your food's run out and you're not just hungry, you're starting to feel weak. So you start to forage. 
but you have no idea what you're looking for and you're just really ravenously hungry and you find some mushrooms and you're like about to just chow down on these mushrooms and you're like, I, I'm not sure if I can tell the difference between a safe mushroom and a mushroom that's going to be dangerous. And so you go past the mushrooms and maybe you find a dandelion or two and you know you can eat those and you eat the dandelion and you're still hungry and you keep looking and then you come across a vine with broad green leaves and clusters of purplish round fruits, wild grapes, hundreds of them, perfectly ripe, and you're hungry, and you just go for it. You're pulling these grapes off the vine, and you're just popping them in your mouth, and they're bursting in your mouth, and the juice slides down your throat, and you're filling your stomach, and you're spitting out the seeds, but in your haste, you fail to recognize that those seeds are not the, the tiny round seeds of a wild grape, but the sickle-shaped seeds of a plant called moonseed, a toxic plant that, if ingested in large enough quantities, can be deadly. It's, at the, it's when the stakes are at their highest, isn't it, that it's hard to tell the difference between what's true and what's false. Church-going people often forget that this is the case when it comes to the songs that they sing or the preachers that they listen to or to the books that they read or to the leaders that they follow. That it is often hardest to distinguish true from false when the stakes are at their highest. False leaders often look really good. Harmful teaching often sounds really helpful. It seems clean and it seems healthy and, and, and even spirit-filled. At first glance. But in many cases, it's actually poisonous. And sometimes it's deadly. This is, in fact, the core problem with the Galatian believers. They were relatively new to the faith. Paul and Barnabas, the men who had been instrumental in planning their churches, were out of pocket when a very spiritual looking group from the holy city of Jerusalem had arrived and they began to teach them a way of life that sounded very biblical. That sounded really good. And these new believers were seduced away from the truth of the gospel. That, of course, is the reason why Paul wrote this letter to begin with. He wanted to pull the Galatians back. He wanted to rescue them from this false gospel of Jesus plus. That message that not only do you need to follow Jesus and believe in him, but you also need to do all these other things in order to be right with God. And here at the very end, Paul turns to the man to whom he had been dictating the letter. It was very normal in ancient times to use a secretary. They called them an amanuensis uh, and uh, dictate those letters because parchment was, of course, very valuable and precious, and they only wanted people with good penmanship to write on them. Uh, so Paul, I imagine, turned to this man who was writing uh, the letter, and he says, uh, get up, give me the stylus, and I, I want to write something in my own hand. Uh, and he sits down and he dips the stylus into the ink and in extra large letters he offers one final word of instruction. How is Paul going to choose to sum up everything that he said so far? Essentially what he's going to do is he is going to equip the Galatian believers to be able to tell the difference between what is true and what is false, between what is life-giving and what is death-inducing, between what is healthy and good and what is poisonous and evil. 
In other words, the last thing that Paul wants us to walk away with in this, in this book is a series of characteristics. Characteristics, on the one hand, of a gospel of Jesus plus and the kind of people who preach that message. And on the other hand, the true gospel of Jesus Christ and the people who preach that message. So you may want to just take a pen and jot them down because there's actually four characteristics of these false teachers and six characteristics of the true teachers. I'm going to try to move through those pretty quick. Uh, but notice with me in the first place from verses 12 and 13, four marks of a message of Jesus plus. What are some ways that I can know that I'm dealing with a legalistic message or a legalistic leader? By the way, these, mar these are marks. They're not each like uh, you still have to use discernment, and they're cumulative in their effect. They're just helpful ways, I think, uh, characteristics that kind of show and give us a clue that we might be dealing with somebody who is a legalistic leader. Here's the first one. Notice verse 12. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised. Did you catch that word, force? Here's mark number one. If they try to manipulate and coerce. If they try to manipulate and coerce. Paul personally experienced this uh, when he brought his friend Titus to Jerusalem, a trip that he describes back in chapter 2, verse 3. Do you remember what he said? Even Titus, he says, was not forced, was not compelled to be circumcised. Titus, uh, they tried to compel him. They tried to force him. The same word is used in chapter 2 as is used here. They tried to force you to do what they want you to do. Why is that? Why is it that people who preach this false gospel of Jesus plus all these other things try their best to manipulate and coerce the people to whom they are speaking? Well, think about it. Remember what Paul has already said. The law, what, what is, what's true about the law? What do we know about the law? It has no power in and of itself to save. It's got no power to transform. What can the law do? It can only make demands. It shows us the righteous demands of God, but it leaves us in that state of condemnation. It cannot transform the sinner. And so in order to see life change, these people who are preaching the works of the law have to bring about that life change through external controls. I have to force you to do what I, ought, what I think you ought to do because your, your heart's certainly not going to be changed by this message. And so, therefore, the, 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 the compulsion has to come from the outside, not from the inside. So, uh, so here's what they do. Leaders, they, they, they like to publicly shame their constituents. They hold out a carrot and beat people with a stick. They try to get you to decide quickly without having had time to think. They massage the facts of a situation or the details of a passage in order to maximize the impact on your behavior they love to create rules or red tape. They lose their temper in order to put you in your place. They give you the silent treatment. They purposely withhold information till the last second in order to throw you off with a negative surprise. They play your friends and your family against you. And folks, when people are doing this, we have to recognize these tactics for what they are. Uh, they decide, they're designed to manipulate you. They're designed to force you to do or say something that you otherwise wouldn't do. Now, I, I need to make a clarification here because sometimes you come across a leader who seems to be doing some of these things, and uh, quite frankly, he or she is just a bad leader. They don't know what they're doing because they're inexperienced, and that's not what I'm talking about. That's not the same thing. 
What I'm talking about are the proponents of a gospel of Jesus plus who must rely on their powers of persuasion and manipulation in order to get you to do what they want you to do. And why do they do that? It's because their message has no transformative power, but beware if they try to manipulate and coerce. Second characteristic. They may be a legalistic leader preaching a message of Jesus plus. If they operate out of the fear of man, if they operate out of the fear of man, uh, notice the concern of these false brothers at the end of verse 12. Why do they preach the message that they preach? What does it say? In order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. You see, Paul's message was so radical from the perspective of the Jews, they tried vigorously to, to stamp it out. Actually, Paul himself was a persecutor of the church before he met Jesus. Uh, not only that, but Christianity was already, even in these early years, beginning to get the attention of the Roman government as uh, a threat to Roman power. So the message of the false brothers uh, alleviated some of that tension. Uh, the Jews, on the one hand, were happy to welcome Gentiles into their world as long as those Gentiles sort of became Jews. Like you get circumcised, you start to keep the law, you integrate within our culture, then we're okay with that. We like that. We won't persecute you for that. The Romans, of course, at this time were already tolerant of the Jewish religion, and therefore the false brothers would have flown under their radar too. And so they're, they're preaching this message not because they really believe it, but because they're afraid of what people are going to do if they don't. They're operating out of the fear of man. And so what I'm saying is that this is a characteristic of leaders wherever you find a message of Jesus plus. The fear of man whether persecution or unpopularity or simply a desire to be praised by others is the driving force behind the message. Folks, you can't control what people are going to do to you. They're going to make their own choices. Uh, I don't think we need to go searching for persecutors. Actually, Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 2 that we ought to pray for a peaceful situation so that the gospel can spread because there's one God and one mediator between God and men. But there are things we're tempted to do all the time because we're afraid of being persecuted or called out or simply because we want to be praised and honored by men. And the reason this is so important to us, why, why do we care about that? Why are we afraid of men? It's because isn't it, isn't it the case that the gospel of Christ just hasn't sunk into our hearts? Like if it were true that we were really being transformed by the Spirit of God in light of what Christ has done, and we were allowing those truths to sink in, we wouldn't worry about what other people think. God's love for us, if we're afraid of man in Christ, is not enough. We need the approval of man. The hope of eternal life isn't enough. We need the comforts of this life. But as we're told in Proverbs 29, 25, the fear of man brings a snare. See, folks, if you're going to embrace the true gospel of Jesus Christ, it's going to require, in different circumstances, just a little bit of courage, a little bit of bravery. Uh, you need to be willing to stand out. You need to be okay with the accusations and the hatred of both the religious and the rebels alike. In fact, I've found that those who are most committed to the truth of the gospel often get attacked from all sides. Like the religious people think you're too permissive. Worldly people think you're too judgmental. Political people think you're too otherworldly. 
Others say you meddle too much in their affairs. You can't win with people, but that's okay because you've embraced the fact that you've won with, or, or Christ, I should say, has won God's approval on your behalf. But watch out for false brothers. Beware if they operate out of the fear of man. Here's the third mark of a message of Jesus plus. Beware if they require you to do something they will not do themselves. Beware if they require you to do something that they will not do themselves. Uh, Notice verse 13. Even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law. They're fake. They're hypocrites. Now, Paul already told us more than once that if you're going to be justified by the works of the law, if you're going to embrace circumcision, then you have to keep every command. You have to be perfect. Now, to be fair to these false brothers... According to historians who have made this point for the last 50 years or so, the Jews, and and certainly these Pharisees on which the the teachings were based, they actually didn't teach that. They didn't teach that you had to be perfect in order to earn God's favor. But Paul's point is, if you actually read the law, the law requires you to be perfect. And these guys don't do that. The false brothers, they didn't even practice what they preached. They did the easy stuff. They did the outward stuff. They were circumcised. They kept the Sabbath and the feasts. Maybe they avoided pork and shellfish. They tried to be above board with their financial dealings, threw a few coins to the poor in the marketplace on market day, but they didn't keep the law. They didn't love their neighbor perfectly. They didn't love God with a perfect heart. And folks, this is a common mark of a message and of messengers who teach Jesus Plus. Their message places an impossible burden on the people who are listening to them, and it is a burden which they themselves are not willing to bear. Uh, This is one of the most disorienting things in many so-called Christian contexts. The preacher just rails against the people in the pew. He berates them. I would never do that to you. You know that. He lays down the guilt. He lays down the shame. And those who actually know the guy in person, in his personal life, they know he doesn't follow any of the things that he says. He's a hypocrite. Sacrifice, put in the hours, dig into your pocketbooks. Okay, is that something you're willing to do, preacher? One of the ministries I worked with in college used to do this sort of thing. They told us we shouldn't be listening to any music at all except for Christian music that they approved and told us we were allowed to listen to. (laughs) I mean, do you think any of the leaders were applying that kind of standard to themselves? No way. And that's one of the marks, folks, of a message that's been infected with this gospel of Jesus Plus. If the messenger is telling you to do things that they themselves are not willing to do. Beware. If they try to manipulate or coerce, if they operate out of the fear of man, if they require you to do things that they won't do themselves. Finally, a fourth mark. Beware if they see you as a statistic. Beware if they see you as a statistic. Here's what I mean. Look at verse 13 again. Why do they want you to be circumcised? They desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. Here's what's going on. These false brothers, they're preaching a message that will hopefully, in their mind, enable them to go back to their friends and their mentors in Jerusalem and say, guess what? I got 364 people to get circumcised and to follow the law of Moses. Aren't I great? 
And they're imagining that they're going to receive all this praise from the people whose opinions they care about, and they don't, they don't care anything about the people to whom they're preaching. They just use those people as a statistic, a notch in their belt. That's what they're after. Folks, one of the marks of a false gospel is that the preacher of that gospel doesn't care about you. He cares about what you bring to him. He doesn't see you. He sees a tithe check. He doesn't see you. He sees an audience who will listen and approve everything he says. He doesn't see you. He sees a vote for his agenda. He sees the gifts that you use when you volunteer. He sees a way to pad his reputation and make himself look better. He doesn't care about you. That's one of the marks of this message of gospel plus or of Jesus plus. Why do preachers or leaders behave this way? Here's why. It's because they haven't been captured by the grace of Christ, right? If they had, they wouldn't need what you bring. They would be okay if you didn't bring your gifts or your money or your time or your talents or your treasures because they, have what, they would have all they need in Christ. They would be free from having to use you. You see, a gospel of Jesus plus a message that is all about the demands of the law instead of the work of Christ, it tells an enslaving story, and that story sinks in. It goes deep down into our hearts, and uh, it, it creates enslaving behaviors, and those enslaving behaviors, they lead to an enslaving culture, a culture in which leaders manipulate, in which they operate out of the fear of man, in which they require you to do what they won't do themselves, in which they see people as tools to be used instead of creatures in God's image to be loved and, and built up. And this problem exists, I believe, in almost any type of organization or denomination. It does not matter if the organization is... Uh, solid biblically and, and teaches the gospel, it's the kind of message that can seep in without us even realizing it at first. Even in our own hearts, in our own families, we start adding things to the gospel, and these are the kinds of results we get. We begin to care more about what people think than, what about, God, than about what God thinks. We stop loving the people for what, who they are. We start only caring about what they bring to us. This is, by the way, why... You need to know the type of people who are leading you, uh, the type of people who are influencing you, because those guys on the TV or on the Internet, you don't know how their character is shaping their message. I'm not saying that they're bad guys. A lot of them are wonderful, I'm sure. But you don't know them. You don't know the way their character is shaping their message. You don't know how they treat real people in real life. They may be manipulative, self-serving, hypocritical, man-pleasers, and those impulses are going to shape their message. So not to be uncharitable, but you need to guard yourself against taking too much stock in what they say, in what these public people say who you don't know at all. You need to know the people that you're following, the people who are opening up God's word to you. You need to be able to get close enough to other Christians to see how they live. Uh, this is one of the reasons why, folks, you should belong to a local church where you know the people and you know the leaders. This is why you should show up every single week, get to know the elders and the deacons and the staff, because you need to know who is influencing you and why. So beware the gospel of Jesus plus. Beware if they try to manipulate, if they operate out of the fear of man. If they put burdens on you, they won't bear themselves. If they treat you like a statistic, those are the marks of a false message. But Paul doesn't leave it there. 
Uh, Notice with me as well from verses 14 through 18, six marks of the true gospel and true gospel messengers. Again, these are not infallible tests. They're markers, they're indicators, they're cumulative in their effect. They need to be used with wisdom. But generally speaking, you know you're dealing with someone that you can trust in the first place if they are relentlessly focused on the cross. If they are relentlessly focused on the cross. Paul says in verse 14, Far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. It is the cross that stands at the center of Paul's message and at the very center of the history of the world. I remember hearing somebody call it once the hinge pin of history. I mean, the cross is the thing, the fulcrum on which everything in history turns. The cross is everything. Remember the thesis of the entire letter from from chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. You remember what Paul says? He says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The hinge is the cross. At the cross, uh, we're brought face to face with so many different realities that change the way that we think and live. At the cross, we see the holiness of God. He judges sin and pours out his wrath upon sinners His curse falls upon the guilty. At the cross, we see our sinfulness. This is what we deserve. We are that Barabbas whose place Jesus took. We're the thieves on his left or right. Mine, mine was the transgression, as the hymn says. At the cross, we see the love of God in Christ, the extremity of his desire that sinners be justified in his sight. At the cross, we see the finality of death and the death of death. When Christ died, he destroyed death. At the cross, we see that the price was paid, the sacrifice for sin completed. The cross leaves us with nothing of our own on which we can stand. Because of the cross, we know that we bring nothing to God, and we, we, we just have an open hand. We say, God, I have nothing to bring to you except for my sin. And because of the cross, my sin was taken away, and now I stand before you just in need of forgiveness and in need of Christ. Folks, if you have come to the cross, you need nothing else. If you avoid the cross, you have no hope without it. Therefore, the true gospel takes us always and often to the cross, the sickening and mangled execution stake turned into a glorious trophy of justice and mercy. So, just to bring it down to practical, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, like if you're not a Christian in your heart, I'm not talking about whether you were, were you born into a Christian home or whether you're a churchgoer or anything like that, I'm talking about if you're a Christian in your heart, or if you're not a Christian in your heart, let me just plead with you to consider the crucified, slaughtered Jesus, to think not only about the blood, but also about the crushing weight of righteous judgment being poured out on that perfect man. And I want to say to you that your sin And your sentence of death can be nailed to that cross too, if only you believe, and receive the free gift of salvation today. You have to be joined to Christ. You have to be joined to the one who is hanging there on that cross. You have to believe in him. You have to trust in him. You have to recognize that your sin is that heinous 
that destructive, that serious, and that he took it all in his body on the cross. He was the one we sinned against. He was the one who had every right to collect the debt, and yet he paid it on the cross. Charles Spurgeon used to say, when I preach, I find my text, and then I make a beeline to the cross. What about you, believer? Think about the last three or four conversations that you had with your spouse or with your children or with your uh, sister or brother or with your friend or coworker. What difference, ask yourself, what difference would it have made if I would have brought the cross of Jesus Christ into that conversation a little sooner? What if I would have brought the cross of Jesus Christ into that conversation at all? What difference would it have made? A little less self-justification, maybe. A little perspective on what's important, maybe. A little compassion, maybe. See, the cross is everything. And a true, somebody who's been changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, they're always focused relentlessly on the cross. Second mark of the true gospel and true gospel ministers, if they are radically free from the world, if they are radically free from the world. Paul says that the cross, at the cross, the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. What does that mean? Does that mean that Paul doesn't care about the earth? Does that mean that Paul doesn't care about the people living in the world? No. Keep in mind that to us, the word world refers to a big place. We hear the word world and we think, oh, the whole world, like this big place. But to people living in New Testament times, that word world, it's not primarily about a big place. It's primarily about a bad place. The world is the cosmos. It's a system that is built by the collaborative efforts of satanic powers and sinful men. It's the organization and the structure and the culture of rebellion against God. Uh, remember what Paul said earlier in the letter. He said, whether you're Jew or Gentile, all of us were enslaved to the elemental spirits of the world. We were all given to the satanic powers. We were beholden to sin's penalty. We were given to the selfish passions. But at the cross, we died to all that. We were set free from all those things. And so Paul says, I am totally free from the sentence of death. I live totally free from the satanic powers. I live totally free because of the cross of Jesus Christ from my selfish passions. And I'm not under sin's power anymore. And he was free to serve the Lord. A minister of the true gospel is someone who is no longer enslaved to the world, but is being set free from those things. He's not enslaved any longer. Thirdly, watch and see. If they care more about a changed heart than a changed appearance. If they care more about a changed heart than a changed appearance. Look at verse 15. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but a new Creation. What does this mean? Here's what it means. It means that whether a person is circumcised or not is not what causes him to stand or fall in the judgment, nor is it really what is important to God. Circumcision is something that's done externally to the body. But what God desires is for the inner man to be transformed and made new. He cares about the new creation. Sometimes we make God out to be very, very superficial, don't we? Like as if he cared more about the way that we look on the outside than the condition of our heart. 
Uh, but this is a nonsensical way to think about God. You are not that su superficial. In your relationships, why would God be that superficial? He doesn't care about circumcision or uncircumcision primarily. He cares about what's in the heart. He cares about the new creation. Think of it this way. Uh, a lot of you are parents, and, and you know from experience that once your kids reach a certain age, uh, you begin to experience these moments where they come out of the bedroom ready to go to church or to a restaurant or to a family reunion, and you say, okay, you need to get ready to go. And they look back at you and they say, I am ready to go. And you say something in your most polite voice. Well, <laughs> did you want to wear what you're wearing? And they say, yes, sir, or yes, ma'am. And you think, is this a joke? And on the inside, you're thinking, you can't wear that. You look ridiculous. But then, in your better moments at least, you pause and you think, okay, it's not that it's immodest or revealing or anything like that. And because you care more about the heart than you do about their appearance, you say to yourself, this is not the hill on which I'm going to slaughter my relationship with my child. <laughs> they need me to focus on their heart. And you bite your tongue and you say, okay, great, let's get in the car. Because you care more about the heart than you care about your reputation. Folks, God cares infinitely more about your heart than any parent cares about his or her child's heart. And sure, that's going to impact what is on the outside. It's going to change the way you speak. It's going to change the way you live and just about everything else. But leaders who focus on the outside to the neglect of the inside are getting it exactly backwards. And the reason why they're doing that is because they're more concerned with the way that they look to human beings than with what God cares about. You see, with someone who's transformed by the true gospel of Jesus Christ, they're going to tend to focus way, way more on what's going, inside, going on inside the heart than in, in what's going on outside. They're much more concerned about heart change than about external appearance. You know, that's true... Uh, at the church level, too, so many impressive churches and ministries out there. They look so good. The lighting is perfect. The music is just right. They get the best shots of the people crowded together with raised hands and, and tears streaming down their face. They publish testimonials of attractive people sharing how such and such a minister or such and such a church just changed their life. There's this energetic, magnetic vibe. But I fear that at times, not all the time, certainly, but at times... What's really important is the appearance and not the heart. What about the heart? What, what about when the music stops and the lights are turned out and the building is locked up and everyone drives away? What then? Are we more concerned with that than with how we look? This is what a true gospel minister cares about. This is what a loving, godly parent cares about. They care much more about the heart than the externals. You may be dealing with a faithful minister of the true gospel if they are relentlessly focused on the cross, if they are radically free from the world, and if they care more about the changed heart than a changed appearance. Fourth mark, if they cultivate unlikely unity. 
if they cultivate unlikely unity. Verse 16, as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. In this single verse, Paul alludes to the profound unity of Jew and Gentile in Christ so beautifully expounded earlier in the letter. Now, we don't have time to go back over that stuff because it's just a lot. But God in his ages past made a promise to the offspring of Abraham. And as Paul explains earlier in the letter, it is Jesus who is the ultimate offspring of Abraham. And therefore, all who are united to Jesus, all who are one in Christ, enjoy all of those blessings and all of those promises themselves. Therefore, all who are united to Christ enjoy the peace the shalom, the wholeness, the restoration, the fullness of God's covenant blessing, and the mercy, God's loyal covenant love, those things that he reserved for those who are Abraham's offspring. And because they are in Christ, who is the ultimate Israelite, they themselves are members of this new kingdom of priests that he calls the Israel of God. In spite of the fact, and folks, I know that many believers disagree... <laughs> with this particular interpretation of this verse. I think the context of Galatians makes very clear that Paul means to refer to the future gathering of every justified sinner, whether Jew or Gentile here. And so here's the point. Any true gospel preacher, anyone preaching the true gospel, is going to preach a message of unlikely unity, a unity of Jew and Gentile together of rich and poor, of black or white or brown, or slave or free, of man or woman. The old walls of suspicion are broken down, and we are built up into one new man as members of a new body. The, the true gospel transforms us, and it takes those people who are enemies, and it makes us into family members gathered around the same table. So-called gospel preachers who want to divide believer from believer on the basis of shared interest or shared ethnicity or economic strata are operating outside the will of God. And by the way, if you operate this way, to the degree that you are living in separation from your fellow believer on the basis of your interest or lack thereof or on the basis of your ethnicity or whatever is the degree to which you're not allowing the gospel of Jesus Christ to really shape who you are. You see, a gospel minister is someone who cultivates unlikely unity. The gospel brings us together in Christ. Mark number five. You might be dealing with a real minister of the gospel, with somebody who is truly being transformed by the grace of Christ, if they keep going when they suffer. If they keep going when they suffer. From now on, Paul says, this is in verse 17, from now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. Uh, in ancient times, great men would mark their slaves or soldiers with a brand or a tattoo. Uh, that mark meant, I belong to this guy. Uh, so now here's Paul with stripes on his back, scars on his wrists and ankles from the iron fetters, a, a mangled visage, from being stoned and left for dead. And these marks, he says, show the world 
that he belongs to Jesus Christ. The Galatians had seen these marks, as he said earlier on in the book, and, and they tested, they were tested by seeing what they saw. Like he says, these marks, these, these sufferings, they were a trial to you. They tested you. Because what happened was they hear Paul's message and they ask themselves, is this what becomes of the man who follows Christ? They might have had a greater attraction to the false brothers with their entourage and their fine clothes, with their wealth, their prestige, their long and prestigious pedigrees. But Paul says, remember that Christ ascended, not first of all to the throne, but to the cross. If this afternoon you decided to visit a bookstore and you were looking for a book to tell you how to live the good life or how to get the most out of life, what would you look for? You walk into that bookstore, Barnes & Noble, or I guess that's like the only one left, right? Uh, you walk in and you pull the first book off the shelf and it, you turn it over to read about the author. And it says, so-and-so started three companies and earned millions of dollars, and his book is so popular that it's been on the bestseller list for the last two years. And you say, okay, well, that's got to be a good book. And you put it back, and you say, that's on the short list. Let's pull up the next one. And you pull up the second one, and it says such-and-such such person is a world-class athlete who won six gold medals and has coached hundreds of champions. And you think, well, this person is a real winner, literally. That's somebody that can tell me how to get the most out of life. And that's on the short list. You put it back. And then you pull the third one off the shelf, a third book, and on the fly leaf beneath an unimpressive photo of an author, you read, the message that this man proclaims has gotten him arrested, beaten, stoned, and left for dead, shipwrecked and hated by many, and he's still preaching that same message. I mean, are you, which book of those three are you going to take home with you? See, our tendency is to find someone attractive and successful and wealthy and powerful and say, tell me how you did it. But Paul says, I've got the mark of a true minister. I followed Christ into suffering, and I am still preaching the same message. You might be dealing with a true minister of the true gospel if suffering doesn't stop him from proclaiming the goodness of God in Christ, if grief doesn't destroy his faith. If difficulty doesn't scare him away, why? Because, folks, the gospel is a matter of faith. It's a matter of seeing him who is invisible. It's a matter of believing when the things around me tell me that I'm believing the wrong thing. See, faith that's seen is not really faith. If it's going to be faith, it's going to be tested when we're going through the valley. You find yourself a person who loves Christ through the pain and through the scars, and you found yourself a trustworthy, genuine minister of the gospel. A minister of the true gospel is worthy of your attention if they focus relentlessly on the cross, if they're radically freed from the world, if they put a priority on a changed heart rather than a changed appearance if they cultivate unlikely unity, if they keep going when they suffer. And finally, if they truly want you to enjoy God's grace. If they truly want you to enjoy God's grace. A man or woman who is being changed by Christ and who has given their life to the true message of the gospel doesn't come to you with any agenda except for one. 
that you might experience the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. So here's Paul. Think about this, folks. After excoriating the Galatian believers, calling them out in the strongest possible terms, he wants to end the letter with this prayer. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. It's like he's saying, Galatians, I'm not mad at you. I'm passionate for you. I'm jealous for you. I want nothing more than that you would experience the true grace of the Lord Jesus. And when I see you going after the works of the law, when I see you trying to stand on your own achievements, when I see you following teachers who try to manipulate you, who care more about what people think than what God thinks, who treat you like a statistic, who, who ask you to do things that even they won't do, then I, I do get a little riled up about that because I'm jealous and I'm zealous for you. I want to see you return to the simple freedom of the gospel. I want you to know the grace of Christ. Folks, this morning, God does not want to use you up. He doesn't want to rob you of your time and money. He doesn't want to get back at you and remain aloof from you for the rest of your days. What does he want to do? He wants to share himself with you. He wants you to know his grace. He wants you to know that Christ came into the world to save and to transform sinners. That Jesus' grace is unlimited. That it's free. He wants you to walk in freedom from sin and from Satan and from the sentence of death. He wants you to know his grace. Brothers and sisters, we must be vigilant. And we've got to learn to tell the difference. Between the gospel of Jesus plus... Jesus plus my achievements. Jesus plus my family name. Jesus plus my wealth. Jesus plus whatever. And the true gospel of Jesus Christ, it says Jesus paid it all. 